Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, the preacher writes, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing, nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. For it comes in vanity, and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness, though it has not seen the sun, or known anything. This has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? Remember, the book of Ecclesiastes explores the question of the meaning and the significance of human life. Is life worth living? The preacher has already explored the question of the monotony of life in chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4 and chapter 5 verse 9 and then the futility of wealth in chapter 5 verse 10 and then all the way through chapter 6 verse 12. Clearly life under the sun becomes an expression of life from a human perspective. Life as we see it or as we understand it. As a matter of fact, life can be monotonous and life can be empty. But it need not be monotonous and it need not be empty if it includes God's plans and God's purposes for our lives. In chapter 6, Solomon considers the source of joy and concludes that fortune does not bring joy in verses 1 and 2. That family doesn't necessarily bring joy in verses 3 through 5. That fullness of years or ripe age doesn't necessarily bring joy in verses 6 through 12. So people looking for meaning, people looking for significance, they look for meaning and they look for significance, but they're also looking for explanations. Explanations about why is my life the way that it is? Why are my circumstances the way that they are? Sometimes the only explanation that God offers at any given moment in our life is a promise. You'll remember that when Job was undergoing enormous pain and enormous suffering, and remember throughout the, 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 the little book of Job, the question is, where are you, God? Why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing? And by the way, Job's questions are never answered. But God shows up and God gives a promise. You would, again, think that in order for life to be truly satisfying, it should make sense. And in this chapter, as the preacher explores some of life's mysteries, he explores the topics of 
Riches without enjoyment in verses 1 through 6. Labor without satisfaction in verses 7 through 9. And finally, questions without answers in verses 10 through 12. Last night I was watching a PBS special that appeared on television. The theme was what makes people happy and included were interviews with prisoners of war and lottery winners. Scores of people were asked about their happiness rating. How would you rate your happiness on a scale of one to ten? The answers were contradictory and predictable. When people were asked, does money make you happy? Clearly, half of the people said, yes, money makes me happy. The other half said, no, money isn't the answer to life's questions. Clearly, money provides security and satisfaction and some contentment, but it doesn't address spiritual needs and spiritual circumstances. There were people who were bright enough to understand that guilt and emptiness can't necessarily be cleansed and filled with a pocket full of money. I read this week the story of a man named Carl D. Atwood of Elwood, Indiana. He appeared on a TV show called The Hoosier Millionaire. He was told on the show that he was Indiana's newest millionaire, and he became ecstatic. I'm very thankful, the 73-year-old man said. He told the viewers that he never expected to win so much money. He said, now I can go buy a car. And he left the show and he walked to the grocery store where he had purchased the winning ticket. He took his groceries. He left the store and he was killed by a passing truck. And some of you can resonate with that. How is it possible that you go through life, you have this enormous, outstanding event take place only to lose your life? Some lottery winners manage to survive the slings and arrows of instant wealth. But some of you probably know that many people who win the lotto, they find themselves after just a very few months or years in way worse shape than when they began. Some people manage... Not to be instantly ruined. Solomon was extremely interested in that concept. He made it his personal inquiry to ask and answer the questions surrounding wealth without meaning. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say that in many portions of the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a thinly veiled autobiography of his own experiences. And so in verse one of chapter six, he writes and he says, there is an evil which I have seen under the sun and it's common among men. The idea is, remember, Solomon is paying close attention. Once again, he looks intently and observes human behavior. By the way, in our reading of Ecclesiastes, the preacher has painted us pictures of people looking for meaning. You'll remember in chapter 2, he paints a picture of a man who's really a clown. He thinks that life is a series of jokes and a series of laughs. And, and he is a person who thinks that in laughter, he can find contentment. Later in the same chapter, he paints a picture of a man looking for accomplishment. 
He goes from the comedian to the hard worker who plants a garden and builds cities. The scene shifts in chapter 4 to abused victims who have experienced mind-bending hardship. Slaves and victims of a war, abused children, broken-hearted wives, nations, overpowering nations as they abuse one another. And in chapter 5, we're introduced to the committed religious person who goes to the temple, who embraces the ritual. But it's the kind of empty ritualistic religion that doesn't change you from the inside out. At the end of chapter 5, the picture shifts from the religious person to the material person who is trying to grab all the gusto that life has to offer but never is satisfied with the abundance of accumulation. We've already seen in chapter 5, Solomon has noted that the more we have, the more we want in chapter 5, verse 10. The more we have, the more we spend in chapter 5, verse 11. The more we have, the more we worry in chapter 5, verse 12. The more we have, the more we lose in chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. The more we have, the more we leave behind chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. Now Solomon compounds the problem for the materialist by pointing out that you can have everything. Required for what seems like a satisfying life. You have power. You have wealth. You have resources. And then, for whatever reason, God takes away the ability to enjoy those resources. What's worse? Having no power, no money, no wealth. Or having power, having money, having wealth, but not being able to enjoy any of it. That's the question that he sets out to look at. Is it possible, again, that Solomon is giving us a hypothetical circumstance? Or is Solomon really talking about himself? Look at verse 2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity and it's an evil affliction. Now, whoever this person is. If it's a hypothetical person, if it's Solomon, if it's a neighboring king, whoever it happens to be, this person seems to have everything that any person could ever want. Riches, wealth, honor. Clearly, from other scriptures, it seems like it's a description of our friend Solomon. In Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, we've quoted this scripture many times. You'll remember that Solomon was given an enormous privilege because of his prayer and his commitment. God said, I'll give you whatever you want. The death of your enemies, long life, unparalleled wealth. And you'll remember he asked for wisdom. He asked for a humble heart and the ability to accurately and appropriately shepherd the people of God. In Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 11, it says, Then God said to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, you have not asked riches or wealth or honor or the life of your enemies, nor have you asked for long life, but have asked wisdom and knowledge for yourself, that you may judge my people over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. And I'll give you riches 
and wealth and honor such as none of the kings have who were before you, nor shall any after you have the like. In other words, I am going to give you exceeding abundant above all that you've asked or think. And by the way, doesn't that become a real picture of the real God? That he always winds up giving you way, way more than you ask for. All I want is freedom from guilt. I'll give you that and more. I want to experience cleansing. I'll give you that and more. I want to enter into a real relationship with you. I'll give you that and more. I want to experience eternal life. I'll give you that and more. Whoever this person is, whether it's Solomon or, or some other person, this person experiences a circumstance where a foreigner consumes his goods. In verse 2, we're not told who the foreigner might be. It might be a neighboring enemy. It might be war. It might be famine. It might be sickness. It might be natural disaster. On this PBS show, it it highlighted certain people, and one of the people that it highlighted was a 22-year-old young man who had just graduated from college who was going to New York to begin a life of, of fulfillment and joy, and he was at a rented property. He went into a pool, he dove into the pool, and he slipped for a split second, and he broke all of the vertebrae right below his neck, and he was instantly paralyzed from the neck down. When he was interviewed, he said, in a split second, I couldn't move my arms or my legs. My lungs collapsed. I couldn't even breathe on my own. They rushed him to a hospital. They put him on a ventilator. They said he would never be able to move ever again. And he said when he heard that news, there was only one thing that he wanted to do, and that was to live. He wanted to live. And he went through a process, a regimen of breathing. When they said that his arms would never move, he went on, on a process and he began to reacclimate so that he could just simply move his arms in a position where he could pick up a glass of water and take it to his lips. Can you imagine where one moment, one split second forever changes your life? It can happen in a war. It can happen through a natural disaster. The same preacher ascribes to God both the power to generate wealth, the giver of gifts, but God also has the power to allow conflict to come since it is in fact God who generates the ability to make money, but he also withholds the power for him to eat or partake of his resources, which begs the question, why would God do such a thing? <laughs> Dave Love and Bill Hansberger were filling in for me on the show today and a caller called in and said, hey, I was talking to Gino and you know, I asked him a question. Hey, does this guy know what he's talking about? I mean, I know he's a pastor and I know he reads the Bible, but he said something that I don't agree with. He said that sometimes God will allow suffering in order to glorify himself. I have no idea what that means. And I found myself yelling at the radio. 
Good thing I wasn't on. I came up with 25 different reasons why God would allow suffering. To glorify himself. To expose sin. To discipline us. To make us sensitive and compassionate. There's any number of reasons why God will allow hardship and pain in our lives because he's honing us, he's purifying us, he's cleansing us, and he's directing us on this PBS special. They, they outlined and they interviewed prisoners of war, and one, one man was a young, young captain who was shot down over North Vietnam, and his plane spun out of control, and it hit the ground, and... and, and he was ejected from the plane, and, but his parachute only opened 35 feet before it hit the ground. And when he hit the ground, he broke his back. And the North Vietnamese took him. And they took him into a prison camp. And even with a broken back, they tortured him continually. And they put him in solitary confinement for three years. And the torture and the solitary confinement that he experienced, he said that you would confess to anything. It doesn't really matter what they ask you to confess to. But this man, recently married, his wife had a baby. He spent eight years in prison and in his mind... He spent a brief time at what's called the Hanoi Hilton, and they worked out a mechanism where they could communicate one to another through tapping. He talked about the mechanisms that they used under the most difficult of circumstances to create a mechanism of friendship and fellowship and mutual support that they could have. And it gave him a desire to live in his mind. He began for hours on end to create the, the home that he would build for his wife and his child when, when he returned. And when he was asked the question, if you had it to do all over again, if for some reason, if there was some way um, that you could remove that period of time for your life, you would never have to have lived that period of, of, of your life, would you? And he goes, no, because guess what? The decisions and circumstances and the formation of my character and inward person was deeply informed by that event. And by the way, he later became a rear admiral in the United States Navy. Once again, the preacher describes this as vanity. He says in verse 2, it's an evil affliction. By the way, that, that word in the Hebrew language, vanity or emptiness, is hevel. It, it means empty, futile, useless. We've defined it over and over again because it's appeared over and over again in the text. Remember, some, one person said that this is what's left after you pop a disgusting soap bubble. But it made me think of my grandma and how she used to talk about useless things. Did you ever have a grandmother or a grandpa that would say, this is useless. This is about as useless as I can't really repeat what she said. But I'll give some that I can repeat. That's about as useless as a chocolate tea kettle. That's about as useless as money advice from Bernie Madoff. You've heard it. That's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. You know it. You, each and every one of you, you have your own little useless thing that you can relate to. 
William Kuyper, who was a very famous theologian and hymn writer. He describes in a book called The Task, something that's futile or useless this way. He wrote the toil of dropping buckets into empty wells and growing old and drawing nothing up. Isn't that good? Here's something useless. Dropping empty buckets into empty wells and growing old and drawing them up. Isn't that the perfect description of people who live their lives apart from God and apart from Christ? They have an empty bucket and they drop it into an empty well. And they know that there's no satisfying solution to the problem of what's going on inside of their heart. But they continue to drop the bucket in a well that is never going to pay off. The preacher describes someone who leaves life soon, too soon. They have everything that they need to enjoy life, but they're not given the opportunity to enjoy the fruit of their labor. We've all heard about the person who works their whole life who anticipates a long and fruitful retirement. Many of my police officer friends tell me about the day that they're going to leave the job. That's what police officers call it. They call it the job. How long are you going to stay on the job? Just long enough till I have everything that I need so that I can live comfortably in retirement. And you hear time and time again of a person who works and works and works. And then within months, within months, within a year after they retire, for whatever reason, they die suddenly or they die tragically or they die unexpectedly. And we've already talked about two kinds of people in the world. People with power, people with money, people with material blessings, people without power, people without money, people without material blessings. And so the preacher adds that third category. Money, power, material blessings, and then no way to enjoy them. He sees it and he calls it a sickening evil. Do you remember that expression? In the book of Ecclesiastes, for those of you who don't remember, turn back to chapter 5. Remember in chapter 5, verse 18, here is what I've seen. It's a good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all of his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him for it's his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Why does God impart the gift to some and withhold it from others? Why are some people able to generate wealth or power or riches and enjoy it and others are not? In verse 3, he says, if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. You know, Children in long life can be a real joy and a real reward, but not always. <laughs> Remember, the psalmist wrote that children are like 
arrows in a quiver, it says in Psalm 127, verse 4. Solomon encourages his children to follow his teaching so that their lives will be long, he says in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 2. The preacher explores the possibility that you can have lots of children and you can even have a long life. Does that guarantee happiness? Is it possible to have a whole lot of children? Is it possible to have a very long life and be totally miserable? Some of you know someone exactly like that. So miserable, Solomon says, in fact, that a stillborn baby has a better life. Now, I need to tell you something. Solomon had an older brother. His mother became pregnant. And she carried the child to term. And the baby died. The baby lived only brief, brief moments. And in the brief, brief moments that the baby lived, David prayed and pleaded and wept for the life of the baby. And then the baby died. Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. According to the Bible, Rehoboam had 88 children. He had 18 wives and 60 concubines. Now remember, his father had 300 wives and 600 concubines. If you don't believe me, look at 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 21. Is it possible for a normal person under normal circumstances married to one woman to have a hundred children? Not really. I can see some of you ladies, your breath is taken away just with even the idea of going through 100 pregnancies. The expression has no burial can mean. It's possible to have a lot of children. It's possible to live a long life. But but when you're buried, it mean, it can mean a proper burial. It can mean that the children don't weep or mourn or lament over the death of their father. In other words, here is this person who had a lot of children who lived a miserable life. And finally, when the poor guy really does die, there's not a single dry eye in the house because his life was so miserable. That everyone was glad when he died. And by the way, that was one of the worst things that could happen in Jewish culture and Jewish, Jewish society. It's to live your life. And be blessed with a wife and be blessed with children, but be completely emotionally detached from those children. The meaning of the text probably includes that idea that even though this person has all of the external trappings of a successful, of a happy, of an abundant, of a fruitful life, his soul, look what it says, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness. In other words, children, long life aren't enough. Affection isn't enough. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do and to consider. 
Why isn't his soul satisfied with goodness? What would prevent the person from enjoying his life or her life? It becomes an important question to ask. Why isn't this person satisfied with their life? And the reason why I ask you to ask that question is because it's only one short step to ask the question, what about me? What about my life? And what about my circumstances? Am I satisfied with goodness? Has God been good to you? Has God given you a wonderful wife, a devoted husband, children? Has God given you a job? Has God provided for you? Has God been gracious and merciful to you? Has God demonstrated goodness towards you and providing a savior for you and forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to the father and eternal life? Then what is it that's preventing you from enjoying your life? Let's apply it to our friend here who has wealth and honor and riches, but he's not satisfied with goodness. What's wrong with him? What's going on in his life? Do you think that there are problems at home? Do you think he's gripped by fear? Do you suggest that maybe there might be an addiction? Do you think it might be the desire to have more or achieve more or always wanting someone's approval or feeling undeserving or unworthy of love or deserving of punishment or thinking that you or your circumstances can never change and so your circumstances are hopeless is that his life by the way more than one person in the bible became so discouraged and so depressed and so confused that they wish that they'd never been born or they wish that they that they could die does that surprise you Moses, in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, begged God to kill him. Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, begged God to kill him. Job, in chapter 3, verse 21, in chapter 7, verse 15, begged God to kill him. Jeremiah, chapter 8, verse 3, chapter 15, verse 10, begged God to take his life. Jonah, chapter 4, verse 3, because he was so committed to dishonoring and disobeying God and running from God's plan and running from God's purpose and running from God's promises and running from God's provision for a group of people that needed to hear a message. And here's the message. In 40 days, you're all going to die. He doesn't want to deliver that one message. You know why? Because he's afraid that the people will hear the message, obey the message, and that because God is so gracious and so merciful and so kind that people would actually hear the message and actually repent of their sin and turn to the true and the living God. And so rather than obey God, he goes in the opposite direction. And a storm comes in order to drive the captain back to the place where he belongs. And remember the captain they're casting lots and they discover that there's a guy on board who's making life miserable for them. And they say, who are you? And Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew prophet and I'm running from God. Hey, do you want all your dreams to come true? Toss me overboard and let the Mediterranean Sea kill me. Have you ever met someone who would rather die than obey God? Have you ever been in 
a position in your life or a circumstance in your life where you would rather be dead than obey God? They do toss them overboard. But God in his grace and his mercy makes a provision in a circumstance where he should have died and he doesn't die. Or maybe he dies. And God brings him back to life. But whatever the truth is, he goes to the destination that God has planned. What do you do with the problems in your life? What do you do with the mysteries in your life and the questions in your life? Where are you taking me, God? Where am I going? What is it that you want me to do? Warren Wearsby writes, quote, to enjoy the gifts Without the giver is idolatry. And this can never satisfy the human heart. Enjoyment without God is merely entertainment. I'm going to repeat that. Enjoyment without God is merely entertainment and it doesn't satisfy. But entertainment with God is enrichment and it can bring joy and satisfaction. You know, when I first read that, enjoyment without God is merely entertainment and it doesn't satisfy. You know, that's true, don't you? Even with 500 channels on your cable. God sees you. He sees you in the living room and he sees you on the bed. Channel 2, channel 3, channel 4, channel 9, channel 551, channel 552. You're going through this wasteland of entertainment. And you don't know what's most disturbing to you. That you've seen all of those movies. And then you begin to add up the hours that you have spent watching mindless, mind-numbing entertainment. And you were entertained for a moment, but it left you empty and incomplete. In verse 4, the preacher says, concerning the stillborn child, it comes in vanity and departs in darkness and its name is covered with darkness. The child is born dead and it's contrasted with the unsatisfied rich man. That expression, comes in vanity, refers to a disaster that brings about the stillborn death. The unborn baby exists for a moment, but in the preacher's mind and in the preacher's illustration, it has no identity. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 58, verses 8 and 9, The psalmist writes, let them be like a snail which melts away as it goes, like a stillborn child of a woman that they may not see the sun before your pots can feel the burning thorns. He shall take them away as with a whirlwind, as in his living and burning wrath. The implication being that in the ancient Hebrew culture, when stillborn childs were born, they were often not given a name. And some of the rabbis thought that they were doing the mom and the dad a favor because if you don't give the stillborn child a name, if you don't give it a name, it won't ever have the opportunity to grow or develop a character or acquire a reputation. So why give them a name? 
It wasn't true, by the way, in every circumstance. Some Hebrew people did, in fact, give their stillborn children names. But remember what the preacher is doing. He's writing from a decidedly human perspective. When a mother carries a child to term and gives birth to to a child, every molecule in that mother's body is saying, I'm having a baby, I'm having a baby, I'm having a baby, I'm having a baby. And so when you ask that mother, is this child a meaningful person with a real identity and a real life? Every molecule in the mother's body says, this is my child and, and this child's life has meaning and purpose and direction. Solomon uses the illustration of a long, empty life and a short, empty life. Why does he use this illustration? What does it mean? What is what is the preacher trying to tell us by using this illustration? Look in verse five. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than the man. The idea is that the stillborn has not experienced life, has no knowledge of this world. Solomon claims that the rich man is worse off. When I was looking at that, I was thinking, what in the world does this mean? What, why is he using this illustration? Why does he bring up the subject that the child at least experiences some kind of rest? What's the point of the passage? You know, the Bible really comes in several different forms. Passages that are easy to understand. Passages that are way difficult to understand. Maybe it hasn't been your experience, but it's been my experience that some passages seem impossible to understand. And I was thinking, what is the point of this passage? What is it that he's trying to say? And I'm not exactly sure, but I'm going to give it a stab. Are you ready? It could be that Solomon is trying to tell us that life without God and a life without meaning is worse than never have ever having been born. By the way, think about that in light of the current culture in which we live. A culture that says you're the product of evolution, that you are the product of mindless circumstances that have created a mechanism whereby you were born with the ultimate end that you will die. But it was an accident that you were ever here. It's incredible that you even made it. And the fact that you're going to die, in other words, you come from a meaningless background and you're going into a meaningless future. But I think that what the preacher is saying is that for the person who attempts to simply laugh life off or to ascribe a false meaning or create a mechanism of trying to fill the emptiness with anything other than God, that the truth is it's probably 
better if you'd never been born. When I was a kid, I lived in a Christian commune. And there was a guy who lived with me in the commune, and he was a, a, like a for real hippie. I mean, with really long hair, the really long beard. I mean, he even went through a robe stage where he, you know, wanted to look and talk and act just like Jesus. But he sang a song that I'll never forget. He and his wife sang a song that went, Life without God is a long, lonely road. One day you'll have to face that fact. But before you do, I want to talk to you about a Savior who's coming back. He's the reason to go on. He's the reason to go on. Jimmy's saying, when you get into a mess, you get into the flesh, for the flesh wars against the Spirit of God. Just refuse it. Don't you listen to it and trust in the Lord instead. It's funny what you remember. Life without God is a long, lonely road. But there are people who are desperately trying to live their life apart from God and then ascribe meaning to it. In verse 6, he says, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place? You know, this is hyperbole. No one lives that long. Even the longest man Whoever lived didn't live that long. By the way, that's a riddle. He's the oldest man who ever lived, but he died before his father did. Who is that? The oldest man who ever lived, but died before his father did. It's Methuselah. He lived 900 plus years, but Enoch, his father, never died. He was taken. He was translated into heaven. What is the preacher saying? A long, miserable, meaningless life has no value. Carl Barth in Dogmatics and Outline wrote, Someday a company of men will process out to a churchyard, lower a coffin, and everyone will go home. But one will not come back. And that will be me. I always thought, what an amazing way to say I'm going to die. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writing to Timothy said, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we won't be able to carry anything out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content but those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows you'd think he's been reading the book of Ecclesiastes 
The Apostle Paul describes false teachers who suppose that godliness is a means of financial prosperity. Here, by the way, godliness means the profession of a Christian faith, but not having true holy living that's been brought on by the power of the Holy Spirit. For these false teachers, religion is just another way to make a dollar or a shekel. To warn Timothy of the problem of covetousness, Paul shared four facts. Wealth doesn't bring contentment. First Timothy chapter six, verse six. The word contentment, by the way, means an inner sufficiency that keeps us in peace in outward circumstances. The person who depends on material things for peace and assurance gets neither. Wealth isn't lasting in verse 7. We brought nothing into the world. We can't carry anything out. Our basic needs are easily met, food and shelter. A Quaker once observed his rich neighbor moving in. Friend, he said, if thou dost need anything, come to see me. And I will tell thee how to live without it. (laughs) Setbacks. Unemployment. Underemployment, accidents, deprivation. Sometimes it provides us with the motivation that we need in order to live with less. The desire for wealth leads to sin, it says in verses 9 and 10 of First Timothy. The text says, They that will be rich, it describes a person who wants to have more and more of everything in order to be happy and successful. But here's what he writes to Timothy, that that kind of bondage restricts and inhibits freedom. Are any of you familiar with Adrian Rogers? He's a wonderful Bible teacher and pastor. He died this last year and went to heaven. But he tells the story of a man who loved gold. He said, when the man inherited a vast amount of wealth, he decided to redecorate his bedroom to reflect his first love. Adrian Rogers says he hung gold parchment wallpaper highlighted by yellow curtains, a golden rug, a yellow bedspread. He even bought yellow pajamas. But then he got sick and he came down with yellow jaundice. He died because when the doctor came to treat him, no one could bind him. I love that story. Life in Christ is rich and rewarding. It's not the years in life that matter. It's the life in the years. And God gives us wisdom on how to live our lives. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, this morning I read, Now that I speak in regard, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The word translated content means adequate, self-contained. I have everything I need on the inside. And I have no need of anything on the outside because the ability to enjoy life comes from within. It comes from your character, not from your circumstances. Paul is in effect saying that because Jesus is inside of him, because Jesus lives in his heart, 
that the reality of Jesus inside him brings with it all of the resources necessary in order to combat life's crushing problems and the ability to act with dignity and strength. In Philippians 4.13, Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It was his way of saying, I can do everything that's necessary. In David Jeremiah's book, Searching for Heaven on Earth, he writes, quote, The same Solomon who wrote, As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor. That is the gift of God later rejects God's banquet table of provision and decides to go out for fast food. As Solomon began to learn or to lean on his financial wealth to the exclusion of his spiritual health, his life and his national empire quaked. He permitted and abetted idolatry. He introduced a deadly virus into the kingdom of which God had made him shepherd. It would take 400 years for the virus to run its course. And then he says this, which I absolutely love. David began as a shepherd and he had to learn to be king. Solomon began as a king and he had to learn to be a shepherd. Allowing other gods was tantamount to letting in wolves among his sheep. He neglected the best advice that his father gave him. He rejected the most important lessons that his father tried to teach him. And when he's making this journey, this pilgrimage, if you will, to determine whether or not life has meaning apart from God, he's going to come to the conclusion that it's not safe to live your life detached from, distant from, separated from God. Now, do you remember what's happening not only in the book of Ecclesiastes, but in this great big story called the story of redemption? Jesse is going to have a son, David. David is going to have a son, Solomon. Solomon is going to have a son and 14 generations are going to march into the future and he's going to have another son. Jesus Christ, the Lord. And Jesus Christ, the Lord, is going to fully and finally and forever establish what it means to experience life and love and wholeness and wellness, freedom from guilt, freedom from sin, reconciliation with the Father, eternal life. And so the whole New Testament is written. Jesus comes, he lives, he dies on a cross, he rises from the dead, he ascends into heaven. You see, even though it might be difficult for us to look at a particular passage or even a, a, a difficult verse, 
When we find ourselves in trouble, it seems to always make sense to me to run to the passages that make sense. To go to the place that you know to be true. In a moment, we're going to have communion. And again, you might find yourself in an empty place or in a place of fullness. In a place of joy or in a place of difficulty. In a place of abundance or in a place of deprivation. But one thing you need to know is that you've been given everything that pertains to life and godliness and the knowledge of your Savior. Jesus becomes the full and final resource necessary to become the satisfying solution of the problem of emptiness and the problem of guilt and the problem of loneliness and the problem of anger. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus. And again, Lord, as we beat the drum that the preacher has given to us, there's meaning, there's hope, there's life in Jesus. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't lose sight of the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with you in Christ. And so again, Father, I pray for that person who finds themselves in a difficult, difficult place. Lord, I pray that even as we prepare our hearts for communion, that, Lord, we want to declare our love and our loyalty to Jesus. But also, Lord, I want to give that person just a moment, just the opportunity and the quietness of their heart and the circumstance that they find themselves in. To admit, Lord, if they've tried to find meaning and purpose apart from God and apart from Christ. That, Lord, that they would repent of their sin and, and that they would come to a place of wholeness and wellness and trusting Jesus and believing the truth about Solomon's son, David's son, the Messiah who would come and live the perfect life and die on the cross and rise from the dead. So again, Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts. Lord, we pray that we could celebrate and rejoice in our redemption, in our freedom, in our future. In Jesus' name, amen.